Why can't I seem to get a handle on life? I'm struggling so much and it doesn't seem like you're helping at all. I know life isn't supposed to be fair, but this just plain sucks. Can't you see what's going on, God? Why do I feel so alone in a world full of people? With all the chaos that's going on, is there really a God? Them's the kind of questions we've been asking in this series. We started last week a series that we're uh, indecorously calling Crap Happens. Uh, talking about the pain that we can experience in this world, the evil that happens, some of the muck that goes on. Um, during this series, we're going to try to keep 10 minutes or so uh, open at the end for questions. Um, and so if you have questions, as I'm going through this message and a question arises uh, in your mind, it has something to do with the message, um, or maybe it's, you know, what is the point of this message? That's a, that's a fair question. But text it in, and uh, we'll try to get to it at the end of this, uh, at the end of the sermon. So the, the number is 651-321-3030. That's 651-321-3030. It's better if you text it in earlier in the message than later, because we've got to cut off taking questions about eight minutes before I get to the end, so they can put them all up on the screen and get ready to go. So uh, first come, first serve kind of a deal, sort of, in a way. Um, oh, and if you don't have a telephone to text on, you can write it on a piece of paper uh, um, and put it on the table in the back and put it in an envelope there. And please remember when you turn on your telephones to text, don't turn on the sound so that we don't have uh, noises going on here during the sermon and whatnot. So, last week we talked about God being all-powerful. God is all-powerful. Jesus reveals that. The whole Bible reveals that. But just because God's all-powerful doesn't mean he controls everything. He doesn't rely on what we called last week Neanderthal power. The power of just brute force. The power just to control. He could do that if he wanted to, but that's not the kind of character he has, and that's not the kind of world he wanted to create. He created a world where the, the ultimate goal is, is to participate in his love, which means there's got to be some choice involved in that. You can't Neanderthal your way into love. And so we, we, we created a cosmos where there's angelic beings and there are human beings who have got free will. And that is ultimately why crap happens, why we live in a world uh, where a lot of things can happen that are not God's will. A lot of things can happen that are painful. A lot of things can happen that are absolutely catastrophic. And sometimes, not only does crap happens, but a lot of it happens at one time. It feels like right now we're in a moment in our world where that's going on. With Japan, it's happened, this earthquake and tsunami, it's just been absolutely, unthinkably devastating. And then this nuclear plant issue, uh, man, just keep, keep that whole country in, under prayer. And then now we've got the thing going on with Libya. Crap happens, and a lot of it happens all at one time. But that happens on a global scale. It happens on an individual level. It happens physically. It happens uh, in our emotions. It happens in our spirit. We're, we're covering the whole gamut here. Um, today, I want to talk about a particular kind of crap happening. Uh, it's not even about physical suffering. It rather has to do with our, the, the pain of feeling like life is pointless. The pain of feeling like your life is insignificant. You ju it just doesn't matter to anything. It doesn't amount to much. And so I want to entitle this message, Insignificance Happens. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, uh, we just pray, Lord, that your spirit would fill this place. And for those who are listening, our podrishioners who are listening through podcasts or 
people uh, watching this on television. I pray, Lord God, that your spirit would just fill uh, whatever room they're in or be around them if they're outside jogging or whatever it may be. But Holy Spirit, take this message and infuse it with your authority and use it, God, to wake us up, to wake us up to a, a profound lie that all of us at one time have believed and maybe are to some extent still believing and to set your people free to, as we just sang about, to dance. Uh, and to live life, to dance life the way you created us and saved us to dance. Uh, be present here, Lord God, and liberate us in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. insignificance happens. This is a message that I think uh, hits on one of the most, if not the most, foundational lies that we as fallen people tend to believe, and therefore hits on one of the most freeing things you could ever get a hold of. In my own life, I will say this has been, I, I, I would guess, the most liberating truth uh, that, that I have uh, uh, discovered. I'm still in the process of being liberated by it. Uh, to set it up, I want to read uh, a parable that we won't actually be getting to until towards the end of the message. But it's taught by Jesus in Luke 15. We covered it a little bit uh, about two or three years ago, back when we were in Luke 15. And by the way, we are going to get back to Luke sometime. We're just not sure when, but... But, but, but this is a couple of years ago, we talked about the lady who lost her coin, and it goes like this. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. Note, she says, My lost coin. There's like a personal attachment. She has to this coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, I, I know what you're thinking. Um, what does this have to do with Mary Catherine Gallagher and her great movie, Superstar? Well, uh, you'll, you'll see here in a second. So this, this, this young lady, Mary Catherine Gallagher, she is in love with this guy, the man of her dreams, wants to kiss him, and she thinks that in order to be able to ever kiss him and have him, uh, she has to be a superstar. And so she lives a lot of her life in this imaginative world where she is a superstar. She's got kind of an uh, imbalanced friend who joins her in some of these fantasies of, of, of being a superstar. And so we're going to watch a couple clips, not, and we're not endorsing this movie, by the way. Oh, no, no, I'm just using it for illustrative purposes. Uh, but we uh, uh, watch a couple of clips of them going into their fantasy of being a superstar. Hey, new friend. Did you see that sign they're putting up? Catholic Teenager Magazine presents the Let's Fight Venereal Disease Talent Contest. Winner gets a free trip to Hollywood and the chance to be an extra in a movie with positive moral values! Oh my god. Ms. Gallagher, so how does it feel to be an extra in a movie with positive moral values? It feels okay. Ms. Gallagher, how does it feel to have everyone want to kiss you that particular way you want to be kissed? <laughs> this was my chance. If I could win the talent contest, Sky's lips would definitely be mine. Hey. hey, Mary. Why so glum? My grandmother won't let me audition for the talent show. The only boy willing to come near me is Howard. 
audition anyway and don't tell her. Really think so? That's it. You're feeling sad, so you know what it's time for? What? Supermodel documentary hour! There's a tree in the city. It ain't Shall I look straight here? I was just walking down the street one day, and a man come up to me and he said, Would you like to be a supermodel and a fairy? And the next day, I'm in New York on the cover of Vogue. Christy Turlington and Naomi Campbell are two of my very best friends, and we get together. It's just like total, total, and utter insanity. Insanity. It's like, it's like three of the most gorgeous girls raising. Problem, ladies? Sorry, everybody. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Those of us who uh, spent some time in Catholic schools uh, maybe can relate to that a little better than, than uh, you, you uh, who grew up Protestant. But um, the fantasy part, I think we can all relate to, can't we? Maybe you, like Mary Catherine Gallagher, dreamed of being on the cover of Vogue. Uh, or you know, being a, a, a GQ model of some sort, uh, or of being famous in some way. What were the daydreams, what were the fantasies that you lived in as a young person and maybe still escaped to once in a while? Uh, when I was in third and fourth grade, okay, maybe fifth and sixth a little later, but, but I, I, I had a, a kind of a repertoire of, of imaginative fantasies I would escape into. Uh, for, for several years, I so badly wanted to be Superboy. Superboy, and I, to the point where, I mean, my, my grip on reality has always been a little bit tenuous anyway, so the line between fantasy and reality would sort of get blurred over, and I would actually wear a cape to school under my Catholic uniform, and I'd have my color-painted S for Superboy, and I wanted to wear it, you know, just in case the bad guys broke into our, our room, and uh, they needed Superboy to save the day. I was there. I wouldn't reveal my secret identity to very many people, uh, although I did to Amy, because uh, I was in love with her. Uh, that was a long time ago, honey. And I, 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 I unbuttoned my shirt and moved the tie to the side and showed her the S. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's true. Uh, you, you get to know. But I'm just, gonna, I'm just telling her I got, got you covered. I was Superboy. I wanted to be Superboy with superpowers. And mainly because that's how I would save the girls and the girls would love me. Most of my fantasies involved having some kind of superpowers and they're always the cute girls in class. And, and I, I would be saving them, you know, and, 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 and rescuing them from the bad guys. Um, some, I would have another repertoire of, of, of imaginative fantasies around being sort of like Elvis Presley. This is, you know, talking mid to late 60s when those very, very cheesy Elvis Presley movies were, were coming around. And, and, oh, I used to watch them and so badly want to be like him. And so I would just imagine myself on the beach, you know, with the guitar and a, and a snarly lip and, and a curl coming down like he had. And I could do it, too, because I got curly hair, so I had a curl coming down. And the girls would just, of course, in my mind now, imaginatively, never quite happened in reality, but they would, like, be, oh, you're singing so cool. And I could hop on the table and kind of do that thing, you know. I, a superstar! We all want to be a superstar! Sometimes I'd even put the two together where I'd be Superboy and, and this is going to be a little hard to relate to, uh, I found out since the last service, but, uh, yeah, I'd be Superboy and a singer at the same time, because I am that good in my mind. Uh, and so, so I, I'd be singing a song while I'm beating up the bad guys, saving the, the pretty girls. 
Uh, I remember one particular song, and, and if you recognize this, you will definitely be dating yourself, Dinosaur. Uh, but uh, the song Georgie Girl was on. Remember that? Jo- hey there, Georgie Girl. I never even knew if, is Georgie her name or an adjective of some sort? I, 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 I never knew what it was about. But it didn't matter, because obviously this song had nothing to do with beating up bad guys and saving the pretty girls. He goes out window shopping and is never stopping to buy whatever that's about. But it didn't matter, because everyone loved that song. And I remember getting goosebumps thinking and singing Georgie Girl while I'm beating up the bad guys. Uh, and I, I'm so relaxed doing it, because I'm Superboy, that I can sing and impress them both with my superpowers and my singing powers. How good is that? Superboy, superstar. Now maybe your imaginative fantasies were a little different than mine. Uh, a little bit, but, uh, but we all had something like that. Uh, dreams of the person that you're going to uh, wow with your love and who you're going to press and what you're going to be and, and maybe it involves supernatural powers or maybe it's just being a fireman, but see, you wanted to shine and be somebody. And, and, and you know, there's a side of that that I think is actually healthy. I, uh, we'll talk about it a little bit more later on, but, but there's, a, there's a good sense in which we're supposed to be a superstar in which we're supposed to shine. We are supposed to, in our own way, I think, reflect the creativity and the beauty and the uniqueness of God, and, and you do it in a way that no one else can. I think we're supposed Earth, wind, and fire is right. You are a shining star no matter who you are. And there's a good sense to that. The trouble, the trouble is that in a fallen world, that gets wrapped up with all sorts of crap. Like, in order for me to shine, I have to be exceptional in terms of having superpowers. For me to shine, I've, I've, I've got I've, I've to wear a cape. Uh, I've got to achieve something. I've got to do something. I've got to impress somebody. I've got to be the hero. And I can only shine if I do those things. It takes us to a fundamental lie that is so, so pervasive that we tend to assume it without even recognizing it as a lie, even believers. It's what I would call the lie of acquired significance. The lie of acquired significance. The lie that your significance is something that you're supposed to and that you need to and that you can acquire. It's a lie that goes back to the Garden of Eden. When uh, Satan tempted Adam and Eve by telling them about this tree of knowledge of good and evil and saying, if you eat of that tree, even though God says not to, if you eat of that tree, well, then you'll be wise like God. There's something you can do, something you can acquire that's going to make you all you can be. Which assumes that it's not okay just being human and having God love you and going out for a walk in the cool of the day, as it says in Genesis 2. No, there's something defective with that. If you want your meaning and significance and fullness of life, there's something you got to do to acquire it. The lie of acquired significance. And we all inherit this early on. We were meant to shine. I I don't believe that's a, 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 a sinful impulse. Every child goes, look at me, and there's a part of that that's, that's supposed to be there. But it gets wrapped up with all the things we're supposed to do and acquire. And, 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 or, or maybe it's even somebody that's, something that's going to happen to you. Who's, who's going to rescue you? Uh, maybe that was the fantasy. Or the fantasy is that how you're going to get discovered. Or the fantasy is that you're going to win the lottery. Or, or however it goes. But that's the dream. And that will give your life meaning and purpose and significance and fullness. You, you can acquire that. You'll be a superstar. And then there are some who, more by luck than talent, actually become superstars. Um, one, in, one in 10 million, I suppose. 
they, at least for a short period of time, become the superstars. But I wouldn't envy them if I were you, even though the culture sort of eulogizes them and holds them up and gossips about them. I, I really wouldn't envy them because the more an idol works for you, the harder it is to ever get free of that idol. I wouldn't envy them. Most of us, however, don't have that problem. Most of us have the problem. We, we, we never are tempted with the dreams actually coming true. Uh, rather, we have to confront the reality that they don't come true. We have to, at some point, and maybe you're still fighting this, but you come to the conclusion that, as a matter of fact, you are very ordinary. Like the other six and a half billion people here on the planet. We're all pretty ordinary. There, there comes a point where you have to accept that you're, you're not going to fly. You might as well put away the cape. Uh, you know what? Uh, you're, you're just not going to be on the cover of GQ. You're not going to own the Fortune 500 company. It, it's just, it, 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 there's not going to be that happy ever after that you've been dreaming about since second or third grade, which would be totally okay. Totally okay. By definition, it is normal, except to the degree that we're living under the lie of acquired significance. Because to the extent that we're living under the lie of acquired significance, it's not okay to be normal. That's not significant. To the extent that we're living under the lie of acquired significance, we've got this dream out there, and the gulf between our dream and our reality torments us. And we feel insignificant. We feel like we've missed the boat. It feels like, 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 like our, our life is pointless. And there's a point where you have to own up to, to, to the fact that life is ordinary. And if you're buying into that acquired significance lie, that reality bites. I mean, you really thought by this age you would be the CEO of a bank, not the clerk. You are 40 years old and you're still the clerk. And not only are you probably never going to be the CEO, you're, you'd be lucky to even get a job promotion. Or you won that happy ever after family, and now here you are through two marriages, 46, and, and no kids, and single, and it looks like that dream's not going to happen. Or maybe you thought by now you'd be that famous singer, but instead you're just assembling parts in uh, some electric company, which is a fine job. In fact, any job in this economy is a great job, but it's not superstar. It's not superstar. And, so, and, and the reality of our ordinariness up against our dreams Wherever they are at in our brain can torment us. And life begins to just feel like a disappointment. How disappointed. How ordinary. How mundane. You feel like life's insignificant. Uh, it can create a painful vacuum inside of us. Or it creates a sense of panic, like we're missing it. Or maybe we've already missed it and there's no way we can get it back. There's one opportunity, one window of opportunity here. That's a very narrow one. Oops, there it went. You could have been. And then sometimes people go into these really sad blame modes where they start blaming. Oh, if only this, if only that, if only this person had done this, well, then I would have been, I would have been something. A sense of boredom can set in, apathy, even despair. Things that used to interest you then don't, be, don't interest you so much. It, it's a terrible affliction. Insignificance happens, and it bites. It bites. So the question we got to ask is how can we get free of this? How do we get free of this? Um, now, before I go on, I want to say this is sort of a preliminary word. Sometimes, when if this is a chronic issue that you have, where you're feeling meaningless, despair, uh, depression, it can be the case, as at least we're considering, that your problem doesn't have anything to do with the lie of acquired significance, or at least it's not primarily about that. It could just be the case that you, your, your chemicals aren't firing right in your brain. 
Uh, we know that the brain is a finely tuned chemical system, and if those neurons aren't popping right, uh, a sense of despair can settle in for no other reason than the fact that the neurons aren't popping right. And so if this is a chronic issue, it's worth talking to a counselor about, or a psychiatrist about, and there's no shame in taking medication for that any more than you, there's shame in taking Tums if your stomach is upset. The brain's a physical organism, and you have to address it at, at a physical level. And the fact, the problem could be something as simple as this. I mean, maybe you're not getting enough sleep and you're not eating right. If you're getting two hours less sleep a night than you need and you're eating a lot of chips and drinking a lot of soda and eating a lot of candy and you're not exercising, it's not going to be a major surprise if next month or next year, at some point anyways, you start to feel kind of glum and, 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 and depressed about things. It's because you're screwing up your physical system and you're a physical being. So pay attention to that. Take care of yourself. Uh, it, it could be something just about that. But if you are relatively stable uh, and regulated in how the chemicals are popping in your brain, and yet you're experiencing this pain of insignificance, and most of us do at some point, then we've got to look at the core theological problem, and it is this lie of acquired significance. The idea that there's something you can and should do to make your life significant, to make it matter. And there's a world's version of this, a ton of different versions, but there's also Christian versions of this. We've got our own little Christianized version of this whole thing. It goes something like this. Most of us have been taught uh, somewhere along the line that the way that you make your life significant, the way that you make your life important and really matter is to go out and do Christian stuff. Go out and save some souls. That will give your life significance. Uh, go to church more. That will make your life significant. Do churchy things. That will make your life significant. Sacrifice for the mystery. That will make your life significant. Serve the poor. That will make your life significant. And all those things are really good things. But I don't think that they're supposed to make our life significant. And then we've got our own superstars, right? We've got you know, the Joel Olsteins and, and, and the Pope John Paul and, and, and the Billy Grahams of the world. And these are the people who do such great things and they make such a big splash. What a difference their lives make. Superstars for Jesus. And the rest of us look at them and they go, oh, our life could never amount to that. We're lucky if we make any difference at all. I, I, I submit to you that it's a lie. As common as it is, it's a lie. It's, a lie. It's, it's the lie that goes back to the Garden of Eden. The lie that you're, you're supposed to acquire purpose and meaning and, and, and significance in your life. It's not only a lie, it's a dumb lie. It's a dumb lie. Do you think God is so trite that your significance is something like some kind of stock that goes up or down based on how well you're performing? I mean, that would be a very trivial thing. Do, do, do you think... That the superstar who can, just by virtue of opening up her mouth, fill an auditorium full of people. Or they sing a song and it makes people weep because it's so beautiful. And sells millions of records or writes a book and, and everybody reads it and it influences everybody. Do you think that person is more significant to God than, let's say, the brain-injured child who dies at the age of seven and their greatest accomplishment in life was making eye contact with an adult for seven seconds? Because if that's the case, then God would have to be a pretty trivial God. Because as a matter of fact, whether you're gifted to be a superstar and can fill auditoriums just by opening your mouth and saying something, or whether you're a brain-injured child whose greatest achievement is making eye contact for seven seconds, that's got nothing to do with you. You didn't choose that. You didn't earn that or anything. That, that, that's just the given of the world. No, no, no. Significance is something that's altogether different than that. The truth of the matter, folks, is that real significance... The real significance that we have is not something that we can or need to acquire or achieve. It's something that can only be given to us by grace for free. And then it gets expressed as love. But it's given to us before we even start loving. The truth is that you already have more significance, meaning, and worth than you can possibly comprehend. Right now, 
apart from anything you've ever done or ever will, will do. The, the, the reality is that you couldn't possibly have more significance than you have this moment, regardless of what you've done and not dependent on anything that you might do in the future because the truth is that your real worth and significance is only something that can be given to you by grace through Jesus Christ. And because it comes from God, you can't add to it, you can't improve it, you can't detract from it. It's rooted in God's character, not yours. It's rooted in what God does, not what you do. The truth is that you, were meant, you really were meant to be a shining star. You're, you're, you're meant to, 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 to be impressive, but not because of what you do, but because of how God made you and how God saved you. And you can reflect the character and the love and the glory of God in a way that nobody else can. You're supposed to shine. There is a wow factor to you, but it's not because you achieved something or earned something or married somebody or something or, or, or got into a right relationship. Real significance isn't the kind of thing you can acquire or achieve. No, it's given to you by grace through Jesus Christ. All you can do is express it. And one way or another, that's expressed through love. Amen. Which then brings us back to the parable. The parable. The uh, lady lost a silver coin. Jesus specifies it was a silver coin. That's, in, in, in Greek, that's drachma. And drachma wasn't the smallest unit of currency in the ancient world, but it was pretty small. It was about an average day page for a, for a peasant worker. An average day's pay for a, for a peasant worker. So then you got to ask the question, why was it so important to this woman? And why does Jesus say it was one out of ten coins? Uh, the best interpretation I've found of this is, is this. We know that in the ancient Jewish world, it was common for peasants uh, who, to, as a wedding, as a seal of the covenant, for the groom to give the bride a necklace that had 10 drachma, 10 silver coins. It was sort of like the poor man's wedding ring. Um, the, the, the 10 drachma, they weren't worth all that much, but they were silver, and if you kept them polished, they shined. And so it, it, was, it was a wedding ring. It was a seal of the covenant. And see, if this lady lost one of her ten coins, and that's what I think is going on in this passage, now you can begin to understand why Jesus specifies it was a lady, why he says it was one of ten coins, why he specifies that it was a silver coin, why she looks so frantically for it, why she refers to it as my coin, like there's some personal relationship she has with it, and, and why she celebrates so, so mightily once she finds it. It's because this coin, the, the meaning of this coin, goes way, way beyond. In fact, it's got nothing to do with its economic value. The meaning of this coin is the meaning it has for her personally. This coin represents her covenant with her husband. This coin represents their pledge to one another. This coin represents all of their hopes and their dreams and their aspirations and their promises. You can't replace this coin. This coin is one of a kind. This coin is priceless. And so she frantically turns the house upside down looking for it and celebrates like crazy when she finds it. What Jesus is saying here is that we are that lost coin. We are that drachma. And God is this lady. And when we are lost and we all were, God goes looking for us. And, 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 and we are worth more to God than we could ever possibly imagine. And we are worth God turning the universe upside down to find. And we are worth God himself becoming a human being and dying a hellish death on the cross just to win us back. But that worth is not because we have a good market value. No, no, it's got nothing to do with that. That worth is entirely based on the meaning we have for God. And the meaning we have for God isn't affected by how gifted you are or aren't. The meaning we have for God isn't based on the fact that when you open your mouth, you can fill an auditorium or that your biggest achievement is that you can make eye contact for seven seconds. The meaning we have for God is based on God's character. 
on what God decides, on, on, on who God is. We can't improve upon that by what, how we perform. That'd be like the coin that the lady's looking for, the coin trying to impress the lady looking for it by becoming a diamond, becoming something it's not. Like if, if the coin could, I'm a mere drachma, but look, I can look like a diamond. Look, look at me, I'm a diamond. But see, the worth that the coin has to the lady has nothing to do with the fact that it's silver or diamond or whatever. It's the meaning that it has for her apart from all of that. So we have this intrinsic worth to God. And we're invited in on this dance, the celebration of this uh, perfect love of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we express that. We are this, this, this coin that once was lost but is now found. The whole business of the Christian life, the whole business is to shine with the shininess that God has created us and saved us to shine with. To, to get rid of everything that prevents us from shining. That, that's the whole business of discipleship. God wants us to shine. He wants us to excel. He wants us to dance. He wants us to live passionately. He wants us to accomplish a lot. He wants us to do a lot of things. But not so that we will now acquire a shininess we didn't already have or acquire a value or acquire a significance we didn't already have. No, 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 no. It's it, that in doing that, we express the value and significance we already have. That's why God wants us to get out of sin, to grow out of the bondages that we get ourselves into and all the things that are beneath us. Uh, why the Christian life is about putting off all the things that distract us and, and that go against the will of God. God isn't saying, hey, make yourself holy so then I'll like you more. No, God is saying, here's who you really are. Here's, here's your real nature. Here's your real worth. Now stop putting yourself in situations and getting habits and mindsets that are beneath you. No, I've created you to shine like this. It'd be a little bit like this. Suppose this lady, she's looking for the lost coin. Suppose she finds it. And since this is a series called Crap Happens, I can use this analogy. She finds it in pig manure. Somehow the necklace coin broke and the coin dropped in pig manure. She would take it up and she would passionately wash it off, wouldn't she? She'd clean it up. But she doesn't clean it up so that now the coin will have worth to her. No, she cleans it up because the coin already has worth to her. That's why she cleans it up. So that it can shine. A coin this precious and priceless should never be, have pig manure on it. And so God calls us and empowers us to live and move out of our bondage. Not so that we can impress him and have worth. No, it's because we already have it. I, I, I'll end with this, and then we're going to take on some questions. Hey, here's an exercise that I would recommend, a spiritual exercise I recommend everybody going through. We have uh, on the back table, or at the hub in the gathering area, a sheet that has a small sampling of some of the I am statements in the New Testament. Who you are in Jesus. What your worth is in Jesus Christ. What your value is in Jesus Christ. It tells you about how the New Testament tells you, apart from anything you do, you have this unsurpassable worth. You are holy and blameless in his sight. He's filled you with his spirit. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You are the bride of Christ. You're, you're, you, you, you ravish the heart of God. And on and on and on. To confront the lie of acquired significance, this has got to get on the inside. Uh, and only to the degree that we believe that and internalize it, then do we start living life out of a fullness that we already have rather than trying to acquire a fullness we don't have. And so I, I encourage you to take these truths and to uh, start brainwashing yourself with them, just reciting them over and over again. I encourage you, the same way that maybe you used to go on flights of fantasy, trying to be a superstar by who you impress or the touchdown that you throw or something, now run superstar fantasies about this, because this is true. What do you look like? Imagine, like we sang earlier, imagine me living this out. 
What do I look like? And begin to see that. Because that's part of how we're transformed into that image. And then it's good to have time where you just enter into prayer with your imagination and envision the Lord. And the Lord comes to you and tells you, as you sit there doing nothing, tells you the truths that you already know are true on the basis of the New Testament. But now he says it with your name attached to it. And just to receive it. Because unless you can be okay just being a human being in God's love apart from all you're doing, well, then all that you try to do is going to be done out of a motive of emptiness which doesn't reflect the character of God, doesn't reflect uh, the kingdom of God. We're meant to dance out of a fullness that we have for free, not work to try to acquire fullness we don't have. Questions, what do we got? We've got eight minutes from Anonymous. But aren't we going to be rewarded in heaven based on how we steward talent on earth? Seems that some have more significance than others. Beautiful question. Uh, the absolute right question. Let me think about it. <laughs> now here, look at. No, I, I, I've been asked this uh, several times, um, and, and there's a really, this is an important concept. This is very hard to pack into a one-minute response, but but follow this very very intently. There's a difference between an intrinsic reward and an extrinsic reward, or an intrinsic punishment and an extrinsic punishment. An intrinsic reward or punishment is one that's connected to what you did to get there. An extrinsic one or external one is one that's not related to the activity. So in a judicial system, for example, court of law, you steal, you go to prison. But going, there's nothing about being in a cell that's connected to the fact that you stole. But, for example, if you were smoking for 45 years and then developed emphysema, that in a way is sort of a punishment for that behavior, but if there's a naturalness to it. it, it the, the, sin, the, broad, the sin brings about its own consequences. But certain behaviors bring about their own consequences that are either rewards for one kind of behavior or punishments for a different kind of behavior. Are you following me on this? The, the main paradigm in the Bible I submit to you about rewards and punishments is this. The rewards are the natural outworking of living in a certain way. And punishments are a natural outworking of living in a certain way. And when you find in the Bible Jesus saying, go this direction and great will your reward be, this is what he's talking about. This kind of, the, 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 the life that you acquire is the reward you get for going down this kind of a path. And one kind of a path is the way that God created us to go in, so there's fullness of life and there's joy and there's a tremendous reward there. When we go into our own self-lordship and call our own things and live our own life, well, that's not the way we're, we're created to, to live. And so we're living against nature. We're, we're beautiful drachma coins, but we're, we're, we're wallowing in pig manure, and that brings about its own consequences as well. And the trouble is, we, we, we in the West, as I've said many times, we tend to think of things in a, in a judicial paradigm. And so we think of rewards and punishments as extrinsic, but something the judge sentences us with. When in fact, in the Bible, it's much more organic, much more holistic. Living in a certain way brings about a reward and a punishment, but the rewards and punishments are connected to how we're living to get there. Excellent question. Next one. How do we stay motivated to become better if our significance is already set? Excellent. Uh, the, the question itself reveals how, how thoroughly and how deeply ingrained the lie of acquired significance is to us. If all your life has been uh, lived to try to acquire significance, it is maybe initially hard for you to even imagine being motivated by any other thing. It could be the case that the reason why you've done anything is to acquire something, to impress somebody, to try to get full, 
to meet a need in your own life or something of the sort. So you, your whole paradigm for living, and this is true of many, 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 many people, maybe all of us to some degree, we're, we're motivated by this emptiness. This is what it is to live, what Paul calls, in the flesh, to live in this fallen world. At the core of changing that is this exercise that I just mentioned a moment ago. Uh, to stay motivated to live out of a fullness, you've got to be experiencing the fullness. You have to have some times set aside where you go to gas up and start changing, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To take the truth and let it start to confront the lie and overcome the lie. And it's not going to be instantaneous. I mean, the Holy Spirit's involved in this and, and so will have divine power to it. But God doesn't do Neanderthal. Very rarely does Neanderthal transformation in us. He works with us to empower us to take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. Now, there's a role that we play in that. And so we have to choose to believe the truth and confront the lie and choose to uh, meditate on the truth and to imagine the truth and to hear Jesus and see Jesus and sense Jesus speaking to us the truth. And as we become convinced, as we become convinced that, that our worth and significance is given to us by grace up front for free, apart from our works, then we, then, then our, we, we will just find our motivation starts to change. In fact, I submit to you that the person who's learned the principle of living out of fullness will do more with their life than the person, in terms of objective measurements, in terms of the splash they make, you'll be more motivated uh, when you have learned who you really are in Christ. And now you live just to express that rather than trying to achieve something you think you're not. This isn't about sit on your behinds and, and eat potato chips the rest of your life because God loves you just as you are. He does love you just as you are. But if you get that, you're not going to be sitting eating potato chips on your behind uh, the rest of your life. No, it's like, oh man, I get to dance with God. And here's what dancing with God looks like. I want to be the best husband I can be. I want to be the best baseball player I can be, if that's your calling, or preacher I can be, or student I can be, or plumber that I can be, or whatever housewife I can be, whatever the calling is. No, you want to dance with that because you know inside who you really are. Okay, got time for one more. I feel no connection, which is all these anonymous things. You, 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 okay, uh, if, if you named your Joe, how many Joes are in this place? Anyways, anonymous. I feel no connection to God anymore and don't feel significant to him. Has God given up on me or have I stopped listening? If it's me, how do I start listening again? <laughs> There's a, oh, how is he going to answer that in two minutes? Uh, you know, okay, keep, keep the question up there, okay? Because I, I want to keep referring back to, there's a couple of questions in there. First of all, has God given up on you? No, 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 the fact that you're asking this question shows that there's life. Uh, uh, the, the, he, he's pursuing you. Uh, the, does a lady quit looking for the coin? Not until she finds it. She's looking. And, and. Uh, turn the house upside down and go into the pig pen. No, God, God's looking for you. God is passionate for you. He loves, like, he loves you like a hurricane bending the tree. So uh, the fact that you don't feel it, see, it, it, it does, it, there's a false alternative. Does it doesn't mean you stop listening? No, it doesn't mean that either. Um, I don't know what it means. Because there's a whole lot of things that go into what we feel at any given moment. Uh, and I don't know you, uh, Mr. or Mrs. Anonymous, so I don't know if you've stopped listening. It, it could, that could be part of it. But sometimes, sometimes you just don't feel connected to God. Sometimes you just feel flat. 
It's weird, too, because I, I can't see rhyme or reason to it, honestly. Um, by the way, we'll be talking about the arbitrariness of life in two weeks. And this is one of the things that seems kind of arbitrary. Sometimes, whoa, God's so real. Uh, well, you go to worship, it's like he's there. Or he's just, there's a sense of God's presence. Other times, and the times can go on for days, weeks, maybe even years. It's like, oh, I'm in a vacuum. You feel like an atheist. Uh, and and I, I don't know why. <laughs> Sometimes I, I, I can't see a correlation between, oh, I've been more righteous, so I feel God more. Oh, now I've been wicked. Now I don't feel God's presence. I, I don't see any correlation there whatsoever. Uh, you can be, Mother Teresa, man, she's on the front lines. She's doing the kingdom. If anyone ever does the kingdom, most of her life, she felt like God was gone and, and lonely for God. So I, I, that's just what it is. Maybe it's brain chemistry issues, for all I know. Uh, maybe you need to exercise a little more, eat less potatoes. That affects our feelings. Honestly, it gets, it gets that practical. But you got to know is this. Whatever you feel, whatever you feel, uh, know that God pursues you. God is chasing you. And, 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 and never decide what is true or false based on how you're feeling because that is the most fickle, stupid thing in the world. It really is. Feelings are just, I love them when they're there. But they're not reliable friends. <laughs> they're not reliable at all. No, no, no. You, got, you, you, you have your reasons for believing what you believe. And sometimes you feel it, sometimes you don't. Maybe you never feel it, but that doesn't make it false. You just keep on walking. And then how can I start listening again? I would just encourage you to, I mean, one thing is, is God sometimes speaks through community of friends. Have friends, community in your life. God speaks through his word. So have times where you, where you read and just meditate on scripture and envision that. And then have times where you just quiet your heart. And this is the one that the last several years has been the most meaningful to me. I find it works best first thing in the morning before I get all the static of the world in my head. And you sit and you just, and you just say, Lord, reveal to me through a feeling or through an impression or something, you know, your voice. Uh, and, and, and get a sense of direction. I always will, and I close with this. It always helps me to, whatever I feel, to know and even imagine God's presence, because God is always here. Right now, God's in this room. And so I want to remember God's presence and be awake to God's presence. And I sometimes want to just sit in God's presence and then just turn your ear, your heart towards him and, and say, speak to me, uh, you know, uh, reveal to me what I need to know. And it may be the case that at some point you'll feel a connectedness to him. Uh, it helps to envision uh, Jesus holding you and hugging you, because that's true. You're not making this up. Most often, our feelings are associated to movies that we're running into our head or pictures that we're running in our head, our imagination. Feelings are a part of our imagination. So if you're not feeling close to God, it could very well be the case that you're imagining God is distant. If you're, pitch, if you, if you're in your mind, or maybe without knowing it, but you're picturing God on the other side of the universe and distant and detached, maybe God in your mind is, is like your dad was, not invested in you or your mother or whatever, well, then you're going to feel that way, regardless of what your theology is. So... Ask God to reveal to you what do you real how do you really envision God? And always know in doing that that the correct picture of God is Jesus Christ dying for you on the cross, praying for your forgiveness with his last prayer. From Sarah. How do we balance wanting to use our gifts towards God's glory without falling into the trap of acquired significance? Beautiful. It gets to the heart of, of, of what we're saying here. And this is especially important for those of us who have, and most of us have been in this category, where the reasons why we've used our gifts has been to acquire significance. Uh, and, 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 and so it's a, it's a reframing of motivation. The answer to the question is to always be in touch with your motivation. You've got gifts. 
Now, they vary a lot. Maybe when you open your mouth, auditoriums get filled, or when you sing, people you know, weep because it's so beautiful. Or maybe the greatest significance you'll have is being able to make eye contact uh, with, with, with somebody for seven seconds. It varies tremendously what our gifts are. But what's all important is that we do those gifts out of a sense of fullness of who we are up front, for free, by grace, apart from the gifts. Who, the value of Greg Boyd is, is, is over here because of my relationship with, with Jesus. And now he's given me a unique calling to put on display that significance through the gifts and to shine. And then he uses that to build his kingdom. And it's wonderful and it's full of joy and it's free if I remember that my worth and core identity I have not because I do the gifts, but before the gifts. And that's why I do the gifts. Do the gifts to express who you are, not to try to acquire who you think you're not. Uh, excellent. Uh, next question. From Paul, how do we balance ambition and humility? How do we balance am ambition and humility? Let me... Um, okay, I, I think that the... It's an interesting question. I'm not sure I would want to balance them. Well, I, I, I think... The, the, the core, uh, the presupposition, the, the real question is, is why are you ambitious? Um, because if you're ambitious in order to prove something, uh, win points with God or with people, if your ambition to fill a hole in your soul or to make dad proud of you, uh, you know, because you struck out in, in the bottom of the ninth inning when you're in sixth grade baseball and you're still trying to prove to him you can hit a home run. If that's your cause for your ambition, then, then it's not a question of how do you balance that with humility. The question is how do you get good ambition? And, and I think if you get good ambition, then if you get the right kind of ambition, it, 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 there's not a struggle with humility. The right kind of ambition is this. You, 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 you want to do this because it's who you are. Uh, you're ambitious because there's an energy in you to shine in a certain kind of way. You want to be the best piano player or the best singer or the best writer or the best plumber or you know, to, to, to be the best husband or the best wife you can be. I, I think we're supposed to strive to excel, be ambitious to excel. But do that because up front for free by grace you have just been downloaded with more significance and worth than, than you can possibly handle. And see, if you have that, if you understand that who you are you are by grace, well, then, then boasting only comes in when we're trying to acquire stuff. That, that is being humble. If you understand the nature of giftedness, you understand that, if you understand that it all comes from God, you can no more brag about the fact that you're able to fill auditoriums with your words where somebody else can only make eye contact for seven seconds. You would no more feel boastful about that than you'd boast about the fact that you're a human being rather than a frog. Where did that come from? I don't know. But that works. That totally works. Because you didn't choose to be a human rather than a frog. And you know what? You didn't choose to have these gifts rather than being brain damaged and, and you're ha having your highest aspiration to make eye contact for seven seconds. So it, it, when you understand that it it's all comes from God and you're just, here's the mirror that you were meant to be, well, then, then there's no temptation to boast. Uh, no, it all is humble. We live just by grace. We only get into the boasting mode when we got to acquire and we got to achieve because now there's this impulse to say, look what I did. Look what I did. I'm a superstar. Uh, you know, you know, shine, be a superstar, but not for that reason. Excellent. Oh, I, I appreciate the question a lot. Now, next question. 
from Alan. So would you say that trying to do good in the world for the wrong reason, the lie, is a bad thing? Ooh, Alan. Alan asked a very interesting question. Is that that Alan or some other Alan? Well, I, 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 I think there's an ambiguity there. I want to say yes and no. Uh, when, when you do good in the world for the wrong reasons, the good that you do is still good. I mean, you know, uh, the people who need the house and you help build the house, they really don't care what your motivation is. <laughs> They're thankful for the house. And it's good that they have a house. The person who goes out and does all these tremendous things to help the poor and to alleviate disease and and uh, fight uh, hunger and to bring relief to folks in earthquakes and, and help uh, kids who, who are underprivileged. All these things, uh, you know, the recipients, they, they don't care what your motivation is. And in fact, some of the folks, I, I suspect, from what I can know about them, some, some folks who are these major, make a major difference in the world, seem to be driven. Sometimes, you know, there's autobiographies or biographies written about them afterwards, they're just driven by this need to matter, to fill this vacuum. They're compensating for what dad didn't give them or mom didn't give them or life didn't give them or whatever. And they do tremendously good things. And the good is still good. That's good. Whenever we make a difference like that, it's good. But it, it's not good for the person who did it. Um, now, I can't judge them because only God can know all the motivations and all the factors and what they had to start with and all those kind of things. Um, but, but living that way, to, to, to the degree that we live out of a vacuum rather than fullness, that's not kingdom. I would just say that. It's not kingdom. Um, uh, it, it may be good in other respects, and it certainly is good in terms of the effect that, that it has in, in the world, but it's not kingdom to live out of desperation, uh, out of a, an attempt to feed yourself. So it's a, it's a very good question. So I don't want to like sweep all that away at all, but I, I do want to emphasize the need for... Um, uh, Doing things out of fullness. Oh, I'll say one more thing, and then we'll take one more question. What often happens, and it goes back to the previous question about boasting, is that when a person is doing something good out of a need to get approval either from God or from others, um, what often happens is they will do some tremendously good things, make tremendous sacrifices, but because they're feeding themselves, often they fall into pride and self-righteousness and judgmentalism. And so these are the folks who will maybe you know, sell their mansion and move into the inner city and serve people, which is good. If God calls you to do that, that's good. But then they'll turn around to all the other people and say, how come you're not doing that? And they become you know, these, these little Pharisees and, and, and judge others because they haven't made the sacrifices that, that they, they make. Well, they're feeding themselves. They're feeding themselves. Uh, they, they need that to feel good about themselves. And that's just unfortunate because that, uh, that, that, that is religious idolatry. Okay, I've got 20 seconds left. Let's see if we can get to one more. Uh, do Christians and non-Christians have the same significance? Very good. I want to say yes. I want to say yes, because everybody, I believe, is created to be that drachma coin. They matter to God more than they could possibly imagine. And that's, the question is, is, is not whether or not a human being has this profound significance before God. The question is, will that significance shine? Will they know that significance, live in that significance? Will they join the dance? The significance is that they were created for this purpose. But since the purpose is itself love and dancing with the God of love, there's got to be a choice involved in that. And, and so those who don't join in this, 
who intentionally opt out of it, they're like drachma coins who are just choosing to stay in the manure. And God is grieved by saying, no, you're meant to shine instead of being, have this manure on you. But there's got to be a yieldness that comes in on our part uh, and, and where we let God begin to clean us off and shine the way that we were always meant to shine. Next question. Ah, here we are. I often pray that God, it should be a capital G, uh, will either change aspects of my life. I shouldn't be making grammatical comments here. That God will either change aspects of my life or make me content with them. He doesn't do either. Why? Whoa. Let me, hang, let me chew on this for a second. Uh, I often pray that God will either change aspects of my life or make me content with them. He doesn't do either. Why? That is a brilliant question. Uh, and it's one that, that I uh, know very well. I, I just said to my wife today, um, this afternoon, that the, uh, one of the hardest things is to know there's this fine dance between what you're supposed to fight and what you're supposed to accept. And, and, and it changes, too. That's what, so, like, should, do we push back on this? Uh, but how long do you do that? Is this, or, or do you just acquiesce to it and say, this is just the new normal. I just got to accept this. Um, Here's the thing, is that I can't answer the question why God doesn't do either of those, but I can say this, that I don't think it's all up to God. See, that, that if God was a Neanderthal God, he would just like, okay, fine, I'll make you content with it. Boom, all of a sudden you find yourself content with it. Or he makes you not content with it. All of a sudden you find yourself not content with it. But God doesn't operate like that. You know, he's influencing you in a certain way, so the, the task is to try to discern how God is influencing you. Um, and, and to discern that. And that itself is a growing process. I mean, that, that's part of the point, is that, that we grow by seeking to discern his will. Uh, that's why he says, seek and, and, and you shall find. Sometimes we just say, hey, will you make it easy for us? <laughs> you do all the work for us, all right? Come on, just run the program. Be Neanderthal. Uh, change me. But see, God wants you to be a partner in the situation because his ultimate goal is to raise up a bride who sits with him on the throne, right, and, and rules with him. And so the first thing we have to learn how to rule is our own life. That's what discipleship is all about. Under, through his empowering in the spirit and by his grace, we then take captive every thought. We're to take captive our emotions. And that's a growing process. And, and he empowers us to do that. So um, I, 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 the question should, I think, rather than be, you know, why doesn't he do that? Because he's just not going to do it unilaterally. The question should be, maybe, how, what can I do to begin to discern his will in this? Am I supposed to be content? Or am I supposed to change? And, uh, and then start moving in that direction. And then you're always praying for empowerment for you to do it. See, this is why Paul says in Philippians 2 that, that God is, um, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because it is God who is in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Now notice, you work out your salvation. You don't work at your salvation. Here you are. You've got the salvation. You've got the, your, your, your silver status, if you will, all right? You, you, you have this precious yeah, treasure. You are this precious treasure, but now you need to work it out. And that's largely a matter of getting rid of all the stuff that suppresses it. Get rid of the pig manure and, then, and, and to let it shine. But you, we play a role in that, an important role. We have to yield. We have to seek his will. Uh, the, the spiritual disciplines are all about learning how to grow in this, uh, fasting and, 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 and fellowship with others. And there's a process, and that's how we grow. That's how we're transformed. We have a role in that. All of the things being equal, if there's something that is a clear sin in your life, then it's something you're not to be content with. And, and you want to be pushing back on that. Now, I say all other things being equal because there's also this principle. And that is that God usually doesn't declare war on everything at once. 
Uh, you know, we're, we're in process. And so it, uh, if we're seeking his will and, and, and following his spirit, and I encourage you to do that in community with others who can also discern God's will for you. Everything in the kingdom works better when it's done in community. But what can happen is God will say, you know what, right now, don't worry about that one. Let's focus on this one. And so you live in that for a while. And, and then, then to make up a time where the Lord will say, okay, now let's start looking at this one. That's why you'll find as you grow, uh, I believe that if you're really growing um, and you're not yet perfect, and very few of us are, you'll find that there are things that, God, that will start to bother you about yourself that didn't used to bother you. Uh, that can be a sign of growth. It's like, uh, how come I no longer feel comfortable? I've always been comfortable with this. And all of a sudden, I'm not, pay attention to that, because God may just be saying, oh, time for a new level. Time to, you know, keep growing in conformity with Christ. And, uh, and, and our job is to yield. Our job is to yield. All right, good, good. I uh, got another question? From Maui, if all of our worth is by grace, why does the Bible say faith without works is dead? Very good. Um, here's the thing. Yeah. And, and this is a very important point. So we, we sometimes put the, the caboose before the engine. Uh, and it's so important to have the engine first. Uh, there, there will be, there needs to be, there has to be what James calls works. Uh, Paul calls it fruit in our life. If we're a kingdom people, there need, needs to be. I don't even want to say ought to be because it's stronger than that. That makes it sort of optional. Uh, no, there will be. There will be some evidence of it. Um, fruit. Another way of saying that is to say, if you are a silver coin, and you are, uh, then, then uh, and, 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 and you've surrendered to God doing some work in your life, the manure will start to come off. There'll be a little glimmer of silverness. You won't be, if you, in fact, are found, and that involves you yielding to God, saying, find me, have me, I'm yours, he'll start the process of getting the manure off of you, and there'll be some silverness to you, if you will. Um, uh, now, that, 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 that there's no one formula about how that looks. Uh, you know, for one person, it may look one way. For another person, it may be making eye contact with somebody for seven seconds. I, I don't know. It, it, I, it, there's just a wide variety of ways it can look. But there will be a, a movement, a direction in your life. When, when, when James says faith without works is dead, this is what he's getting at. If, in fact, you really have faith, you really have a, a trust in God, and that's always evidence that God's been working in your life because you wouldn't have that unless you were, at the core, you're being yielding to him. If that is there, it will have some evidence. But he's not saying faith without achievements is dead. I, 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 I feel a good point coming on right now. Okay, here comes a good point. Well, listen to this. Here it comes. Download, God, download. Okay, here's the thing. We often think, yes, 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 yes. There's a world of difference between why a work being there as a way of trying to achieve something and a work that's there because you're expressing something. When a person claims to have faith and there's nothing there, that, is, that calls into question the authenticity of your faith. You know what a person believes by, 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 by their life more than anything else. And that's what James is getting at. Don't kid yourself. You can say you believe something, but if, you're not, if there's no action on it, well, then, then really examine yourself. Maybe you're kidding yourself. Um, but if it is there, there will be some manifestation of it. Some silverness will be, will be there. But that, it's not because you're trying to achieve something. It's like this. If I am a silver coin, there will be some silverness as God washes the manure off of me. But that's very different from me saying, I need to become a silver coin. Man, if I can just do these works, I'll become a silver coin. 
If I am a silver coin, there'll be this silverness. But that's not to say, I need to acquire some silverness so I can become the silver coin. There, there, there. I said it. Any other questions? That yeah, came out. See, if you just keep on talking, sooner or later you'll get it right. Uh, is there, are, are there any? We've got time for one more, I think. From Andrew. If our significance is by grace, then why does the Bible talk about rewards? I've been asked this a number of times. This is a, a very uh, good question. I think it's because we tend to l- be conditioned by the lie of acquired significance. That we interpret rewards and punishments as, 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 uh, as legal things. It's also because we tend to frame everything in the legal sort of paradigm in, in Western theology. That when we hear rewards and punishments, we think of them as extrinsic things rather than intrinsic things. Uh, and here's what that difference amounts to. A reward or a punishment is extrinsic if it has nothing to do with your behavior. It's just sort of added on. Like, if, if you steal, you'll get thrown into prison. But being in prison is, has no natural connectedness to stealing. Whereas if, let's say, you smoke for 40 years and come down with emphysema, you know, in, in a way that's a punishment for, for your smoking, but, but it's intrinsic. You see, that there's a, a naturalness to it. it. It brings about its own effect. I submit to you that most of the time when the Bible talks about rewards and punishments, especially in the New Testament, it's thinking of it intrinsically rather than extrinsically. It's not like, oh, if you're a good boy, I'll give you this cookie, and if you're a bad boy, I will spank you. It's rather, if you live in this kind of way, you'll become this kind of person. And man, do you want to become that kind of person. But if you instead live in this kind of way, being lord of your own life, choosing your own way, it will result in this kind of a person, and that is misery, that is hell. And so the reward, the, the reward, greatest reward, the reward is that you become a kind of person who shines like you're supposed to shine. Uh, and and you, you've got a greater capacity to receive and to reflect God's love and to experience the joy of, 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 of living with and dancing with the triune God. Uh, being the child of God is its own reward. And, and reflecting God's character and love and delight is its own reward. And so, yeah, live in this kind of way and you'll get a reward. But it's not like a cookie. You know, it's, it's intrinsically related to the, the walk we're on. This way of living brings this kind of reward. It's, it, it is this life. That way of living brings about this kind of punishment. It's that way of life. And we're created to go in this direction where there's fullness of love and joy, not in this direction, which is sheer misery. I want to end with prayer. Amen. And uh, as I do, I want to ask the prayer teams to come up. And if you're here and have any need whatsoever uh, that you'd like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward and, uh, and receive prayer with them. I also encourage you to do that during our worship times. It's such a beautiful thing to see people receiving prayer as, as others are going into worship. Father, we thank you, God, for being a God who gives us up front, up front and for free and unconditionally a significance that is a trillion, trillion, trillion times more beautiful than anything we could ever acquire on our own. Uh, Lord, I thank you for loving us for free, for being the kind of God who invites us in on the dance that you are from all eternity. God, clear away the pig manure that keeps us from shining, that we can be, uh, Lord God, uh, coins that really know the value that we have to you and that put that on display for the rest of the world to see. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's precious coins said, God bless you guys. Go out and shine.